0: So, this morning, I got up out of bed, or at least I tried to. I've been pulling some late nights the last couple of nights, um really the last week, and uh I went to get out of bed this morning when the alarm went off, and tried to stand up and the next thing I knew I was laying on the floor with my head on the floor, and my wife's like, "Are you okay i th- I think so I'm not sure how I got here um, so I think maybe that's like a sign of how the talk is supposed to go tonight. Not like I'm supposed to end up on my head, um, but like hopefully this talk is going to be a surprise to you and me, because more than just me should go into this talk, I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you guys tonight. Um, So I like to start with fundamentals. I like to start with things that are foundational, things that are familiar. it's kind of important because fundamentals are things we can all relate to. We can all come back to. When I feel like my life is getting offline or I'm losing my bearings, I can come back to fundamentals and start from scratch again. I can I can find my way home again from there. Just like, you know, uh, points that we can all identify, like Mount Rushmore or the White House. Hopefully those don't help you find your way home. But maybe we could all point to the Dublin Pub or another local landmark that helped us find our way here tonight. But Landmarks and fundamental elements aren't really important if they're, just, if they're just a landmark. They need to have meaning. They need to be relevant to us. So the pillars of our faith, something that we can go back to as an important point, they need to be relevant to us. Because if they're no more relevant to us than, say, the pillars of the Parthenon, then they're just holding up a hollow structure to some God that I never knew and never will. So I want to point to some fundamentals of our faith tonight and hopefully bring us into a closer relationship with relevance for those fundamentals so that we'll always be able to come back to those and never lose sight of where we're going, use those to keep our bearings. I always like to start my talk with one question. Where is God? Because everybody's had catechism, and a lot of us remember Baltimore Catechism, so somebody tell me, where is God? Too many of you remember this from my last talk, because the catechism says God is everywhere, Um, and that's great, but I never settle for that, and in fact, when I ask my kids that question, they will always give me a triple answer. They refuse to give me the answer I want. I want the answer here, because while God is everywhere, that's not always relevant, when I drive down through the Oregon District on my way here, I know God is everywhere, but when I look around me, I see a lot of places where it doesn't look like God's been there recently. So maybe that's not relevant enough. I need to know that He's here. So my son always says to me, He's everywhere, because he knows that's the, the basic answer. He's six. And then he says, He's in us, because he learned that when he learned about baptism. And then he says, Oh, yeah, and he's uh, he's here, too. Because ultimately, he's trying to delay getting to my next question. My next question that follows it is, when can we talk to him? So when can we talk to him? Now. 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 I mean, that's the only relevant answer there is. Because if I say, I can talk to him anytime, true enough, not really relevant. Because the only moment I ever have is now. And if I'm not going to talk to him now, well, that just means... I can talk to him anytime, which means I'll talk to him sometime, which means I'm not going to talk to him now, and now's all I've got. So let's talk to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, upon us tonight. Be with us as we have set ourselves before you to open our ears, open our minds, and open our hearts to the love and mercy that you have for us. Draw us ever more deeply into your spirit and give us the boldness to go out and share that same spirit of love, mercy, and power with the world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my talk is, I'm No Saint. But what I want to highlight here is really how we as Christians we are different. We are different from anybody else in the world. We believe different things. We live different ways. And our lives have meaning that the rest of the world doesn't even have a clue about. It doesn't take a whole lot to look at the news and say, when they say that Christianity says this, or the Pope says there's no hell, or something like that, you're like, you guys don't have a clue how this works. Obviously, it's not relevant to them. We're going to kind of come back to that. You guys are going to see a theme here. It's not relevant to them. I think that's a lack of credible witnesses in our society today. Not that there aren't any, but I think there could be a lot more. But I want to start with Christianity isn't just having membership in a club. We don't just... Get baptized. Join the club. We're in. We're done. We're saved. Great. No, Jesus is continually saving us. He's continually converting us, continually sanctifying us. It's a when we get when we join the faith, we are being set on a path. We're not getting our member card. We're being set on a journey. That is an ongoing experience of my life being continually renewed. Jesus is continually making my life new. We become permanent witnesses when we become Christians. And I hope that term witness evokes something in you. I hope that sounds a little bit exciting because the Christian life is supposed to be exciting. Pope Francis says, the Lord wants us to be saints and not to settle for a bland and mediocre existence. He contrasts the life of the Christian with bland and mediocre. And yet, that's what people in the world generally try to paint Christianity as. That's what I hear people try to say all the time. And when they say bland and mediocre, it's clear to me that no one has yet made that relevant to them. So I can't really fault them for that. It's not relevant to them. Why would I expect them to see it as anything other than bland and mediocre? There are times when I think ballet is bland and mediocre, even when I'm sitting at the ballet with my wife. Um, that's because right at that moment, it's not feeling particularly relevant to me. We need to make it relevant to the world, and that's going to happen in our, through our lives. All right, so I want to highlight three ways in our lives that are going to affect how we live and should be a sign of how we live differently. So they're kind of be going to be in the shape of questions that we ask. And then later on in the talk, I'll address answers to these. But I want to start with a a quote from Pope Benedict from his letter, Space Salvi. He says, the Christian message is performative. That means the gospel is not merely a communication of things that can be known. It is one that makes things happen and is life-changing. The dark door of time of the future has been thrown open. The one who has hope lives differently the one who has hope lives differently. I don't know if any of you guys have heard that quote before. Hang on to that. That's kind of going to be the foundation for our talk here because the one who has hope lives differently. We want to see what that means. Who is the one who has hope? Well, who are we different than? We're different from the ones who do not have hope. The world is the ones who do not have hope, those who dwell in the world. These are the ones who have no hope and are contrasted by Scripture with the saints or the holy ones. So I want to remind us what hope looks like. So somebody give me the name of a saint. Faustina, all right? All right. Another saint, somebody over here. Sorry? Peregrine? Beautiful. Joseph of Cupertino, fantastic. Fantastic. What's your name? Oh, I'm Andy. Andy. Yeah. Guys. This is Saint Andy. Yeah, you know, I sounds funny. But the church has called us the holy ones. We are the saints. You know, are, are we members of the church here? We are. Amen? Amen. We are members of the church. The catechism says, "What is the church if not the assembly of all the saints?" I don't think that excludes any of us, okay? Now, we have a habit of not claiming this for ourselves, and that's really not cool. I want you to think about something for a minute. Say you're in love, okay? And for some of this, may be easier for us to relate to than others. Say you're in love, and you look at your beloved, and you say to them, you're amazing and uh and you're beautiful and and you're wonderful and your beloved looks back at you and they're like you know what um actually I'm really kind of boring and uh I've looked in the mirror I know I'm I'm actually pretty plain and I'm kind of useless I'm not really wonderful at all but it's really sweet of you to say so and you're like no but I I really believe those things about you I really believe those things. And they're like, it's really sweet, but it's just you. Does that encourage us or build us up when what we love is downplayed, when it is mistreated? Does that encourage us? Does that make us feel better? The church has said to us, Christ has said to us and his bride has said to us, you are holy and set apart for me. We're not allowed to not claim that. You're not allowed, okay? It's part of your identity. It's who you are. And we are the saints. We are the holy ones. Maybe you're thinking out there, you don't know me. And the fact is, I'm not one of your holy ones. And I'll come and stand alongside you and say, I know what you mean. You're right. I, I don't know you. But the church isn't holy because all of her members are holy. She is holy because she belongs to Jesus Christ. If she was holy because of her members, she would only sometimes be holy and in certain places be holy. But because she is holy because of Jesus Christ, she is holy in all times and in all places. We are holy in that same way because we are members of the church. So I want you to begin today to live differently and to claim the holiness that isn't just commanded to you, isn't just demanded of you, but it's part of who you are. This isn't just something out there. This is part of who we are. And I think that this is especially important because a lot of times we will reject it because we think that, well, I don't deserve it. But it, it is because we never deserve it that we have to learn to embrace this. We have to learn to run to our Lord when we least deserve it. Because that just means we need it most. Okay, If any of you ever studied divine mercy, you know that it's really beautiful and really neat and really amazing. And divine mercy is the mercy of God. It's really big, like infinite, because it's part of God. It's, a, it's an attribute of God. And this should inspire in us this hugeness of God's mercy, which is likened to an ocean. This the hugeness of this should inspire us both to confidence and humility. Confidence because of the mystery that God really just does love us that much. He really just has an ocean full of love for us. Okay, and He wants to give us the whole ocean of mercy. He doesn't just want to give us enough drops to make you okay. All right, He wants you to have the whole ocean. He wants you to become that ocean for others. Okay, so the humility side of it is the mystery of the fact that we actually need that much mercy. A lot of times we tell ourselves, well, give me enough to make me okay. Give me enough to just fix this one thing that's wrong with me, and I'll be fine, and I will... You know, I'll serve the Lord and I'll follow him every day and I'll pray and I'll read scripture. You know, just give me enough to get me there. We actually need the whole ocean. We don't need we don't want to settle for the drops. Don't settle for just a droplet. Rejoice when you're aware of those droplets being dripped on you. But there's a whole ocean there waiting to be poured out on us. Okay. so three things that I want to address tonight. We'll start with the first one. The church teaches us that God can forgive any sin. Okay, on its face, maybe it doesn't sound really exciting, but maybe you don't realize how exclusive this is to Christianity. There are a lot of other religions out there or faith systems or beliefs that would say there isn't any sin or sin doesn't really matter or, well, it it all gets covered up, okay? Christianity says God can forgive, wipe away, remove any sin. This is, this is kind of a big deal, and people tend not to get it. I, I don't know why. I don't know why. We, we just don't. We tend to not get that his mercy is really a lot, lot bigger than our sins. The church tells us that when we fall into grave sin, we should try to elicit from ourselves an act of perfect contrition, unite ourselves with a desire for the sacrament of penance and that we should go running back to Jesus. For some reason, we have this idea that I need to be punished. Okay, I did, I did a bad thing, and um, now I, I can't really go to Jesus because I feel really bad about what I did. Okay, I mean, it's, it's a good thing to not be pleased with a sin that you've committed, but that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel does not say that Jesus wants to punish us when we sin. He wants us to come home. When did the father punish the prodigal son? I mean, we're talking about the best insults known to man are what his son applied to him. Probably bigger than any of us get in Western culture today. When did the father punish his son? Never. He was waiting for him to come home. I'll tell you, one of my best and worst jobs as a parent, I have three kids, six, five, and two, And one of my best and worst jobs as a parent is to discipline my kids because it's really challenging and I learn a lot from it. But I tell you, when my son has done something wrong, when he's been disobedient, I'm hurt and I'm, I'm sad way more than I'm angry, way more than that. I might be sad about it. Nothing relieves that. Nothing consoles my heart as much as my six-year-old boy coming up to me with a tearful, I'm sorry, Daddy, and being close to me. that it is, it is about, I cannot imagine a more intimate moment with my son than when I can take him in my arms and say, I forgive you. I love to forgive my son. We are, we are after that moment, we are closer than we were before he disobeyed me. Okay? And that, I think, is an insight into the love of our father for us, okay? He doesn't just say, hey, you're back in the house. He wraps his arms around us, and he's like, you're home, okay? I try not to think about the prodigal son story too much because I – sorry, maybe too much information. I get a little bit teared up because I see that father in the front porch, and he sees his son coming down the road, and he is – running i mean we're talking this 80 year old guy who should not be walking without a walker and somebody behind him and this guy is running down the road and he just grabs his son in his arms and he just screams with delight and i can't believe this is really happening that's the kind of excitement that god has to see us come back we will be closer to him than ever before when you sin we got to come back to him God can forgive any sin. How do we do that? How do we come back to Him after we sin? How do we overcome that negative response of "I'm I'm not really, I'm not really a good person, I'm not really holy, Jesus, even though I, you said I am. That was just nice." I want to address that a little bit later. Let's move on to the second thing. God works all things for our good. So we just talked about sins, and I just mentioned how we come back after sin and we are closer to god when we can come back and accept his forgiveness than we were before we ever went away god can work all things for our good that's that principle of where sin abounds grace abounds all the more you break a nail your project runs into a dead end your coworkers blame you for the project falling flat your tire goes flat on the way to work what do you say well, that stinks. Well, that's what the world says. I, I think we kind of need to respond differently if we believe that God works all things, all things for our good. There is no that stinks. I mean, things smell weird sometimes, but there's no that stinks in the life of a Christian because all things are being worked for our good. Because that's how powerful our God is, that he is able to overcome anything and turn it towards the good of those who love him. He can take tornadoes and earthquakes and catastrophes and persecutions. He can take our sins, no matter how deep and dark and personal. And ultimately. He can work all of those things for our good. There, there's no limit. He can work all things for our good. Okay? Third thing. We have to be different because the world tells us to shut up about our faith. And I know that kind of sounds maybe contradictory. Um, but that's a reason for us to be different from anybody else in the world. You know, there are, you see people trying to take down pillars of the Ten Commandments in front of, uh, in front of, public monuments. You know, we want to take down nativity scenes at Christmas. Uh, We want to take down crosses on public property. We hear of friends losing their jobs for their faith, losing their friends because of their faith, people being taken to court. In the right part of the world, we see persecution, jail time, people losing their lives. The world is really good at trying to convince us that we should shut up about our faith. But you know what? The reason they do that? It's not relevant to them. They haven't seen the witness. We know that evangelization is the job of every Christian. It's its part of who we are. But how do we live this out in the face of all this vitriol against Christianity in the world today? I'm, I'm going to address that in a minute, but it seems rather contradictory to even try at sometimes, But the world is not static. The world is moving, and it is moving away from Christ. And the poet T.S. Eliot in his, uh, in his poem, The Family Reunion, said, in a world of fugitives, the person taking the opposite direction will appear to run away. Okay? We will have to appear to run away. If we are running with the crowd, no one will notice us. And Christianity will never be relevant to them. When we appear to run away, to run away from the glamour of the world, to run away from immorality, to run away from all that the world holds up as good and right and holy, people will take notice. And we will appear to them to run away. It will be a sign of contradiction to them. Practically, how do we live this out? Get to that in a minute. Before we move on, I, wanna, I want to encourage us and I want to ask a couple of questions that I think are important with the witness of some of the saints who have already reached their destination, whereas you and I are still saints on the journey. These guys have reached their destination. They have found the final home. They've won the prize. Okay? So we have to ask, is the Christian life doable? Because I know Jesus obviously lived the Christian life, but hey, you know, he was God. So, probably a little different for him than for me, yeah, at least a little bit. But if I know that there are other human beings who have done this, and maybe they could give me some advice along the way, that would be really helpful. So, I want to ask if the Christian life is doable. Is it reasonable? And when I ask if it's reasonable, I'm actually trying to get at a couple other questions. I'm trying to get at is it true? Is it true? Is it effective? And if I perceive myself as a rational person, then I'm saying when I ask if it's true and effective, I also want to ask, is this a way of fullness of life for me? Or is it bland and mediocre? Is it really life? Or is it just not dying? But is it reasonable to believe that we can go beyond what we see and live lives like Gianna Mola, Pierre Giorgio Frassati, The Little Flower, Louis and Martin, and others like that. Now, I want you to, to notice the names that I've thrown out there. None of those people were martyrs. None of those people were foreign missionaries. None of those people were preachers. But they were all permanent witnesses. And now... They are all, or soon to be, saints in the church. Canonized saints. Hopefully, you too, me too, someday. Vatican II has a beautiful document on this, Lumen Gentium. I'm not going to quote it tonight, but I do recommend you go home and read it, along with Space Salvi and uh, Pope Francis's Gaudete et Exaltate, which he just released this week. Don't worry, I haven't read that whole thing. Just a few paragraphs, and it is beautiful. Um, But... I do want to give you some quotes from other saints in heaven. Uh, I have frequently misattributed the following quote to The Little Flower. It is actually St. Faustina. She said, it is truly easy to become holy. It just takes a little goodwill. It's easy to become holy. Okay, when I first read that, uh, the book I was reading, I just closed it and put it down. I don't even know what to say to that. I still don't know what to say to that. I, I'm starting to believe it. I'm starting to believe it. Any Anybody around here want to do good? They want good? Come on, hands. I want to see him. If there's somebody here who does not want to do good, raise your hand. Okay, good. Let's go on. So the rest of the quote. Uh, it's truly easy to become holy. It just takes a little goodwill. If Jesus finds this minimum of goodwill in a soul, he quickly gives himself to her. And nothing can stop him. Neither our faults nor our falls. Remember what we said about Jesus overcoming all sins? Neither our faults nor our falls. Absolutely nothing can stop him. If the soul is faithful to this grace from God, she can in a short time reach the highest level of holiness that a created being can attain. God gives even more than we ask for. The shortest road. This is the punchline, guys. The shortest road is faithfulness to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. Now, this talk is not about that, but I would say if you're going to take one thing out of this talk to your prayer tomorrow, take that. The shortest road is faithfulness to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit. I think a few of you guys know what I'm talking about. The rest of you... You got a lot of excitement in your life coming up. All right. And lest we should think ourselves too small, too weak, or incapable of grasping at this, St. Therese the Little Flower says, My gifts and talents and virtues are nothing. Yeah, that's right. What else did she say? I'll do it. I've got it in front of me. They're nothing. They're not what give me unlimited confidence. The blind hope that I have in his mercy. That is my only treasure. Why would this treasure not be yours? And she says that to every one of us. Why would this treasure not be yours? The weaker one is, without desires, like desires for holiness, without virtues, the more suited you are for the workings of this consuming and transforming love. There is no I'm too small. That's not a drawback, apparently. That's a bonus. And, and let me just, let me pull that out a little bit for you, practically speaking. Um, it's kind of a gift if you're small and weak, because weakness is one of the best schools for humility. Those of us who think we have skills, we got smarts, we got capabilities, we can do it on our own, we always think there's something that I can do on my own. You be small, you be weak, you got this. Okay? When we are weak, we acknowledge what is just as true for the strong person, but they never acknowledge that I just can't do anything good on my own. And you can start from that, and as Therese likes to say, we don't climb the staircase, we walk up to the stair, and we go, "Uh, uh, uh, too tall, I can't get up it. And Jesus comes and picks us up and takes us in the elevator. The elevator, like to the top, okay? All he wants to see is us trying. A couple more quotes here. Speaking of the impact, that will be one day be made by St. Louis de Montfort's true devotion to Jesus through Mary. Louis de Montfort said he foresaw a great squadron. Note, he did not say a couple people. He said a great squadron of brave and valiant soldiers of Jesus and Mary, of both sexes, to combat the world, the devil, and corrupted nature in those more perilous than ever times which are about to come. We live in perilous times. Amen? Amen. We do. We're the squadron. Let's go, guys. In fact, he goes on to say that God is forming for himself great saints who shall surpass most of the other saints, Great saints who shall surpass most of the other saints. My friends, we have been given a greater treasury and more riches than any generation of saints before us. All we have to do is ask. Great saints who shall surpass most of the other saints in sanctity. But he doesn't stop there. He says, as much as the cedars of Lebanon outgrow a shrub. I want you to think of some big saints: Teresa of Avila, Ignatius, Peter and Paul. And I want to take this a step a step further. Okay, who's the uh, who's the biggest saint after Jesus? Who's the who's the biggest human being to ever live? The most holy person to ever live? Mary. Okay. If it were possible, I'm going to caveat this. If it were possible, I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it is. I'm going to try to stay away from any kind of heresy while I'm up here. (laughs) If it were possible for you to be holier than the mother of God, she would want it for you. The saints want this for us. It's what they sought their entire lives and nothing will make them happier than to see you achieve what they so long sought. They are there to help you on the way. They are interceding for their brothers and sisters. They are never separated from us. Make you some friends. And uh, I went a long time without having any friends like that. I think I'm starting to get a couple. It's a journey, just like any other friendship. It takes time. But who are these saints? We actually have more information on who these saints are. So who here thinks that they're, like, already awesome? Nobody already awesome? Good. Good. Okay. Liars. You forgot. We're all saints. Louis de Montfort says, These are Mary's humble saints and poor children. So all you guys who ain't awesome fall in this category. Mary's humble saints and poor children who have been trodden on by the world as the heel of a foot, but who become the heel that crushes the head of the serpent, the serpent in union with Jesus and Mary. Okay? And let's not think that we're shortcutting the path to holiness because the Lord longs to give this to us. He wants to give this to us. He is dying to give this to us, okay? He is. He said to St. Faustina, my heart overflows with great mercy for souls, especially for poor sinners. I desire to bestow my graces upon souls, but they do not want to accept them. Come to me as often as possible and take these graces they do not want to accept. In this way, you will console my heart. In this way, you will console my heart. By accepting these graces that the graces that you and I have so often rejected. The graces that I have so often said, um, I uh I did something bad and uh we can't be friends for a while. Right? That's how this works? Wrong. I need to go running back. I need to go running back to be closer than I ever was before. Okay. So enough of the Saints, they're awesome. Someday we'll be with them, be like them. So how do we, the ones who have hope, the ones who have hope, how do we live differently? How do we live out the life of a saint? Well, a lot of this this is going to have to do with consoling the heart of Jesus. Although I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot, except in the context of trust, because that's what consoling the heart of Jesus is all about. It's about trusting him. So the practical response to my reasons for living differently is for all of them, trust. We have to learn to trust. How do we trust? Well, let's begin with sin. Earlier we said God can forgive any sin, no matter how great. Well, we need to live that. Why is this important? Why is this important that we let God overcome our sins, that we accept the fact that he can? Because we need to receive his forgiveness. We tend to not get forgiveness a lot. Oh, what do you talk? I, I go to confession. I tell Jesus I'm sorry. We're, Jesus is always offering us that forgiveness. But so often in my heart of hearts, so often I'm not receiving. So often, even when even when I feel like I'm trying to go to him, I'm still going in my heart not good enough. I'm not I, I can't come back yet. I still feel dirty. I still feel like the leper. But you know what? Jesus didn't wait till the leper was well to touch him. Jesus went out and touched the leper and made him well. Okay? We need to learn to receive forgiveness because that's how we can give forgiveness. We ain't giving what we don't have. If you're not if you haven't received forgiveness, you You can't. We can't. We're going to give it as imperfectly as we've received it. Okay? If you recall the story about the unforgiving debtor in the gospel, okay, he goes to the king and he says, I owe you like a bajillion dollars. Actually, he owed him more than that, but he owed him like a bajillion dollars. And he says, give me time. And the king laughed and said, you ain't going to live that long. No. No. The king said the king's heart was moved with pity and said, "I forgive you." But if you look at that story, he goes out and then he chokes his fellow servant who owes him a pittance and could have paid him back with more time. Remember, he didn't need that money anymore because he wasn't paying off any great debt. He was offered forgiveness and he didn't receive it. He was told one thing and he heard something else. He heard, "You got time." Pay me back. Pelagian thought he could do it himself. No. He didn't receive forgiveness, and that was why he couldn't give it. Okay? We need, to, we need to get good at this as Christians. We need to get real good at this as Christians, giving forgiveness. And in order for us to do that, we got to start by receiving it. Because as I said, we can't give what we don't have. So when do we have opportunities to receive forgiveness? When do we have opportunities where we're aware of our need for forgiveness? When we fall. When we're reminded of our sins. Who reminds us of our sins? Especially the devil. The devil likes to remind us of our sins. Okay? Well, we're going to turn that on its head He likes to cause us sins. Why? Because they cause us pain. They get us ultimately to harden our hearts. We justify the sin so the memory doesn't hurt as bad. We bury it away down inside so we don't have to think about it. And that's what he wants. Harder, tougher hearts. People want to complain about thin skin in this culture. We need to thin the skin on our hearts. We need to be very soft hearted. Cardinal Christoph Schonborn, Archbishop of Vienna, says that insensitivity, hardness of heart, is the primary sin of man against God and neighbor. Indeed, it is the loss of our humanity. With hardened hearts, we lose the ability to relate to others, to be understanding of their weaknesses, to even be understanding of our own. Yeah, the devil knows how to hit us where it hurts because it makes us unable to go back and get the very forgiveness we need for that hurt and that sin to go away, okay? How do we combat this? How do we combat this hardness of heart? Well, we take our sins to Jesus and accept forgiveness. How do we do that? Well, the next time that the devil reminds you of your sins, the next time you see something that brings it up, the next time you sin and you become aware of it and you feel that coming on again, you're like, I feel awful, and I can't be near Jesus. I need to be away from him because he's so good, and I'm so not. Run to Jesus. Run to him. Our sins need to drive us to Jesus. That's what needs to happen. That's the answer. That's how we respond. Our sins become the impetus for us to go to Jesus. I sin a lot. A lot. Anybody else ever sin? I sin a lot, okay? That's a lot of reminders for me to go to Jesus. And uh, maybe you can relate, maybe you can't. I've got some big stuff in my history that I'm not proud of, and every time I think of it, it hurts. Every time I think of it, it hurts. And I feel dirty, and I feel like the leper, and I feel like cast out, and I need to cast myself out. But that's not what I need to do. I need to run to Jesus, that's a lot of reminders for me to go to Jesus. That's, that's a lot of forgiveness that I can be getting every day on a daily basis, okay? Because, well, I, I got two more things that have to do with that. First of all, I want to go back to how much he loves to be our Savior, okay? This, um, this wasn't something, some dirty job that Jesus did, to come to earth and die on the cross so that he could save us. And thank God that's over. No. He loves to be our savior. He would do it again if it made a difference. Okay? He loves to be our savior. He longs to give us his mercy. He told Faustina, the flames of mercy are burning me. I desire to pour them out upon human souls What pain they cause me when they do not accept them, okay? We need to accept his mercy and free ourselves of our burdens. Here's the irony of letting your sins drive you to Jesus. Those sins that the devil reminds you of that hurt so much, that drag you down so much, that pull you away from our Lord so much. When the reminder of them is driving you to the cross, is driving you to the heart of Jesus Christ, is driving you to forgiveness, he's going to stop reminding you of them. When your sins, the memory of them, drives you to Jesus, he's going to stop reminding you of them. It's true. Why the heck would he do that? Before, it was hardening your heart and sending you away from Jesus. If it's sending you to Jesus, you're going to be free. You're going to really be free. Okay? He's going to stop reminding you of your sins. And this, this going to Jesus, this is trust. This is an act of trust. If we made ourselves vulnerable like this after I hurt somebody who was anybody but my best friend, okay, maybe even my best friend, and I turned around and made myself vulnerable to them, unless right then in that moment they got a heart of gold, they're probably still stinging from whatever I did, and in my vulnerability they're going to take advantage of it. So it takes trust because our experience is not that when we go to people in our vulnerability we get mercy. This is a great act of trust. A great act of trust. And as we said, it will console the heart of Jesus. It brings him joy. He gets to be our Savior. Let him be your Savior tonight. Okay? Trust in thanksgiving. All right? So we said God works all things for our good. So when the weather's bad and I'm late for work or um, I get sick, what am I going to say? Anybody got any ideas? Thank you, Jesus. And that may be even harder to do than the last one. Thank you, Jesus. Because I believe. I don't know it yet. It's not in my heart yet. But there was this weird-looking guy at Theology on Tap who told me that God works all things for our good, and I've heard that somewhere before. The Bible. And... Thank you, Jesus, because I want to believe that. I want to believe that. And so it's kind of a long road to get there. But you know what? If you're faithful to that, you're being faithful to the Holy Spirit. Where did we hear that before? When you're doing that, you're being faithful to the Holy Spirit. You will see the fruits of that experience. He will give you the trust that he wants to give you. You are opening yourself to trust even when you can't trust yet. Praise God for the difficulties. Okay? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to learn from this. Last section. Trust and boldness. When our society is telling us to shut up, how do we respond? We, we, we talked about some ugly stuff that's happening in our world today. How do we respond? You know, I hear a lot of people that are quoting Paul and saying, I urge that supplications and prayers be made for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. It's, it's the gospel. It's true. I'm not arguing with it. While you should be doing that, there's something else that you should be doing more. And it has to do with trust. Okay? When the apostles in Acts were under a direct attack, Society, And they told them to shut up and stop talking about this Jesus, who we're pretty sure didn't rise from the dead, even though we can't produce his body. Let me just read you what it says in Acts. When they were released from the Sanhedrin, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they all heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, this was a, a prayer. And now, Lord. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants, here it is, to speak your word with all boldness. They didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for peace. In trust that God was working all things for their good and knowing the commission that they had, they prayed for all boldness to go out and speak the good word the good news, and share Jesus with people. They said, look upon it, and they didn't stop there. It gets better. They said, look upon their threats and grant your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They asked God to manifest his power because what would that do? Not only would it encourage the faith in the people who they spoke to. It would encourage their own faith. It would confirm what they were saying. But they just asked for themselves. They said, just give us boldness. You go and evidence your power for us. Okay? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The prayer was answered then and there. And that is how we respond today when our culture is telling us to shut up about our faith. We respond with trust, trust that when we step out with the boldness that he will provide, that he will work his power to confirm the words we speak. They stepped out in trust and didn't ask for safety, but for boldness, and for God's power to be made manifest because they knew that God would overcome whatever weaknesses or deficiencies they had. And God responded by pouring out his Holy Spirit on them. And I just want to close tonight with a similar prayer. Lord God, I ask you to grant us here tonight the grace of trust. Grant us the grace of trust send us your Holy Spirit to fill us with trust so that we may run to you in our sins so that we may praise you in our difficulties so that we may speak your word with all boldness. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. So apparently I uh, caused some confusion. There was a question about whether or not what I was talking about was contradicting free will. No. Uh, God having control of everything and being able to convert everything for good isn't contradicting our free will. And if you want a deep theological discussion, I can't give it. It's um, beyond my expertise, beyond my competence, at least this evening. Meet me at a coffee house next Father week. Yeah, talk to Father Steve. He he can give you a much better answer. Thank you. I keep feeling like this is loose. All right. Um, I really like this question. It says, to what extent should we focus on our past sins? Uh, a lot and none at all. So the same response that uh, Bilbo gave the trolls when they said, are there more of you burrow hobbits about? Sorry, dead serious is what he said. Lots and none at all. Um, Lots, it it can be useful to focus on your sin lots if it's a fruitful way of meditating and bringing them to Jesus. Um, As I said, if our sins are driving us To the foot of the cross, if they're driving us to the heart of the father, if they're driving us to the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, our savior, if they're letting him save us again, then we got nothing to fear. We got nothing to fear. If your sins are weighing you down, don't spend time on them. Don't don't be thinking about them. Don't be calling them up for no reason. God's going to put those away. And if the devil reminds you of them, take him to the cross. When he stops reminding you of them, unless the Holy Spirit feels the need to convict you of them again, let that be his prerogative, not yours. I try not to dwell on mine unless I think it will actually be useful to help somebody else. Say, hey, I've been there. Otherwise, I I would say no. Um I like this question, too. It says, how do we reconcile things like the, uh, the way I express the grandiosity of God's mercy, the exceptional nature of Christian life, a willingness to run the other way with humility? How do we reconcile these with humility? Becoming potentially greater than older saints does not seem humble. You are, you are absolutely right. We are, we are not going to be greater than other saints. How do we, how do we reconcile those? By remembering that those are all reliant on trust, and that, as Therese said, I don't climb the stairs, someone else carries me up them. I don't do it, I don't become greater than the other saints. It was Therese who said that the blind hope that I have in his mercy is my only treasure. The weaker one is without desires or virtues, the more suited one is for the workings of his consuming and transforming love. Um, The part of that that I didn't include is comments from Therese on how much she loves her littleness. This is a school of humility. Trust is a school of humility. She loves her littleness. She says... My gifts and talents are nothing. And I think we know that she had gifts and talents. The little flower had beautiful gifts and talents. She had beautiful virtues. They shone for the world to see. She was a shining example, a credible witness. The beauty of holiness came out from her life. But that was not what she rejoiced in. She loved her littleness. That's the part of that quote that I didn't include. And now I'm sorry I left it out. Okay? There's no contradiction between this and holiness, between the greatness that God wants to give us. Because we can only, we're we're only going to receive that greatness by embracing our littleness. By acknowledging over and over again, I can't do it. I can't get up. I can't forgive myself. I can't get rid of my own sins. I got to take him to Jesus. I got to let him pick me up. I got to let him carry me. I got to ask him to give me boldness. I have to have him reinforce anything I do with his power. It's not me. And anything that happens in my life, good, bad, in between, praise him because. It's all his and not mine. So Job and why me with all those difficulties? Because God loves you. That's the only answer I've got. If you're asking why me, then you might not get very much out of it while you're in it. And I, I, It's not about getting stuff out of it. I don't want to put it that way. But God is not... To, just dumping stuff on us. He is changing our hearts through our experience. And I think that Job's heart was renewed through his experience. Ultimately, there was a great revelation at the end of the book of Job. I'm no specialist on the book of Job. <laughs> so, but I, I think that if you're not asking why me, but you're, which Job was also doing, was saying this is from the hand of the Lord. He takes and he, ge- he gives and he takes away. Um, when we can praise him in that, it's that act of trust when we make that act of trust we're allowing him to change our hearts and that's really that's really the core of it is that the heart our hearts are being changed through those experiences not just teach me a lesson let me learn how important it is to do good for other people or to be persevering in difficulty but being persevering in difficulty my heart is changed and I do trust (laughs) So when we are going through difficulty, what would I say to someone to encourage them to to just to do more than persevere? Um, so I think that going through difficult times, um, it is a beautiful thing to have a certain amount of faith before we enter those hard times. And then they can, in a very real way, be a blessing, not just in disguise, but a, in a very real way, be a blessing in our experience of them. Um I work with a ministry called Unbound and we deal with a lot of people who I would say literally have no hope um, who are dealing with great wounds, deep hurts, things that they carry and sometimes they just know they need help and they don't even know where to go. Um, And to those people, I share the gospel. I share the gospel of repentance, of faith, of forgiveness, renouncing the evil in our lives and allowing the Father to bless us. That's, that's the ministry of Unbound. It's the applying of, a, of the gospel to a person's personal experience. And the way that that model is designed is to bring it very quickly. So speaking from my own experiences, there are many ways to bring the gospel to people and there are many ways to bring the gospel to people that are hurting Um, and people that are in different places and they're hurt or have different backgrounds in their faith life are going to come in different ways and need to be approached in different ways, but everybody needs to be loved. And that's one thing we say in one bound. If nothing else happens, the people that come to us for prayer have to know that they're loved. We have to be Christ to them. So I would return to um, the quote from Faustina that I gave you earlier. That, that faithfulness to the inspirations of the Holy Spirit and allowing him to run your life. That, as St. Paul said, you don't have to worry about what to say, per se. Preparedness is always good. Experience is always good. But if you come to a person trying to love them, you're not, you're not really going to go wrong.